This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Uh, If you would open your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. I'm always aware at the uh, last day of these retreats that it takes a almost revival level move of the Spirit of God for people to uh, make it through the message, but I'm trusting God will provide that this morning. We come, I was reminded of something I said last year, one of the dads reminded me that we come now to the highest peak of all, God's Word, and it does have power, and I, I am... I'm, I'm excited about this final passage for us. As we seek to answer the question biblically, who am I? I think this passage has something delightful and profound to say. So let's read it with that expectation. Romans chapter 8, we're going to begin reading in verse 14, dropping right into the middle of Paul's argument. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, he says this, for all All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Lord, bless this preaching of your word. My oldest daughter turned 16 years old this year. It's a little hard to believe for me, but she's 16. And 16 years ago, this last February, I brought her home from the hospital. And all of you parents will relate to this. I pray that all of you teens will one day be able to relate to this. But when I took her to the car and took her home, you just have to trust me. There has never been a more careful driver Heading home. I'm pretty sure I slowed down for green lights on the way home. Um, I was so concerned because I, I so desired to take care of her. I so desired her well-being. I didn't feel sufficient to provide that, but I wanted to provide that. I, I didn't want anything to harm her. I, I loved her. And that love continued When I would hold her when she was very young, she would cry at night, sometimes late into the night, and I I would hold her as she cried. And as she got older and she could engage, I I loved engaging, looking into her eyes and, and trying to communicate the best way I could my affection for her. And then my wife and I taught her to walk watching her take her first steps and taught her to talk and learning that she could say things and communicate about her world and her delight in things delighted me. I loved her. As I know, the parents here love their children and, and you teens one day, you will love your children. 
She was my and is my beloved daughter. And to this day, 16 years later, when I come home, she comes up to me and kisses me on the cheek. And it's a delight to me to see her. Now, I want you to imagine something for just a moment. Imagine a very different relationship. At the hospital where she was born, there were a number of medical staff. But I want you to picture one of the doctors that was there watching over her, and and an extremely helpful person, caring and providing and making sure she was safe and healthy and and okay and not going to to die or not in harm of any way. And then imagine, if, if you would, that that doctor, as helpful as he was, as useful as he was, as concerned as he was for her, Imagine him the next day and the day after that, after she leaves. I, I would suspect, though, he was a good doctor. He, he wouldn't remember her name. He wouldn't be concerned about whether she's walking or talking or what she's doing that morning or the first time she smiled. He wouldn't delight over her first word. It was a very important relationship that he had with her, a very crucial, actually, relationship that he had with her. But, but it was just that. It was just that one formal professional moment in time when he provided for her, and perhaps he'd been available again if we needed to go back. But it's a radically different relationship that I have with her. Too often, Christians, when they think about their own identity, they relate to God much more the way my daughter might think of that doctor. Helpful, important even, necessary, they don't think of him as thinking of them, caring for them, concerned over them. They, they might even think perhaps that he has forgotten me in the midst of all the other things he has to do, all the other people he has to care for. He's important. He's strategic, but he's not fatherly. He's not affectionate. And if you were honest, you might think of yourself as someone who is even a bit of a stranger to God. You have a sense of confidence that you knew him at one point, that you came to him in faith, but you're something of a stranger now. He's there. He's available, but he's not close to you. He's not affectionate with you. He's not watching over you, or if he does, it's in some professional sense as God. The Bible says different. Paul says something different. He comes to us and he he wants us to believe something in this passage. He wants you to believe if you are a Christian, if you have believed in Jesus, if the Spirit of God is at work in your heart as he is in all Christians, he wants you to believe that you are a beloved child of God. That is true of you if you are a Christian. Whatever you feel, you might feel that God is this professional thing that you need in certain instances, but the reality is, the truth is that you are a beloved child of God, that he is your father, that he relates to you with infinitely more affection than I do to my daughter or the best parents here do to their children. That he is your father. That's not a wish or a hope or a dream. That's the reality. And if our hearts or thoughts about God are different than that, they need to line up with that true identity. Paul wants you to believe this. God, God himself wants you to believe this. You are a beloved child of God. Let's walk through what Paul says and try to let this identity 
before we leave here today, press into our hearts. Because it's possible if we think about the majesty of God as creator and the holiness of God who rules over all things, and even God perhaps as a redeemer, as a savior, we, we might miss the fact in those identities that God has also become our father and that we relate to him as beloved children. So let's walk through and let that identity press into our hearts. I want to basically divide my commentary here into two sections, our current privilege as God's children and then our future glory as God's children. But pretty much we're just going to walk through one verse at a time and see what Paul says. He, he begins there in verse 14. We're sort of dropping in to something he's been talking about, about our way of life. And he says, look, there's, there's two ways to live. One is that we live by the Spirit of God, and the other is that we live by our old flesh. And he's saying, look, you, you are those who ought to live. Your real life ought to come from the Spirit of God. And then he says, let me tell you something about that. If, if God's Spirit is in you, is working in you, there's something profound that you ought to know about yourself. And that's where we drop into the argument in verse 14. He says, all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. Now that's not to come across to us as some kind of condemnation, as if we're to, to wonder, well, well where, how am I to think about myself? Am I either of those things? Am I led by the Spirit of God? Am I a son of God? No. He, he's saying, I, I want to state an emphatic fact. If the Spirit of God is in you, and if he's not, you wouldn't love God, you wouldn't care about God, you'd be hating God and turning away from him. But if there is in you that spirit-born love of God and, and you're led by him to want to follow him and you've turned from your sins by the power of that spirit and trusted in Jesus, let me tell you, he says, what is true of you. You, you are counted a son of God. And, and ladies, don't be discouraged by that. I'm sure you've heard that before. In, in this culture, that wouldn't communicate some denigration to you. It actually would communicate an honor. It would be a, a way of saying uh, the, the highest privilege that could be afforded, which in that culture would go to, the, to a particular son who was an heir, it's afforded to all of God's children, men and women. There's no distinction. All of God's children are, are counted with the privilege of being God's son. You are a child of God, Paul is saying. If, if the Spirit is at work in you, this is also true. In other words, what he's saying is that there aren't two tiers of Christians. Those who are following God at some level and those who have a higher privilege of being able to call God Father. His point is, if you are led by the Spirit of God, you are God's child, he counts you as his child. There aren't higher and lower tiers of Christians. There are those who are God's children and there are those who are children of wrath. And if you are led by the Spirit of God, you are a beloved child of God. That's the point he's making. He says you, you have this current privilege. And then he begins to, to comment on what he's just said. He said, let me tell you something. You did not receive the spirit of slavery in verse 15 to fall back into fear. He, he's, he's not saying God doesn't own us because he does and doesn't command our allegiance because he does. He's describing a scenario where people might think of God as this condemning master who could discard them at any moment. As you might an, an unwanted slave, so to speak. In that culture, 
the person's own obligation to hold on to a slave. They, they could get rid of that slave, but not so a child. He's saying you, you might think that your relationship with God is, is one of this, this fearful terror, not knowing when he might discard you or particularly when he might judge you. He thinks of you merely functionally as someone to get something done. And if you don't get that done, he is angry at you. He will punish you. He might even discard you. He might count you as worthless. He's saying, that's not your relationship with God anymore. That's not who you are towards God. You are not to view God with that kind of slavish fear, worry of being discarded or judged or cast out as unworthy of his presence. No, that is not how God sees you. God sees you like a child. A child that would never be abandoned, even in the midst of their disobedience, they wouldn't be abandoned. It is not true of our own children. It, 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 you know this naturally. It's not like when you do something wrong, your dad's like, well, that's it. That's it. You don't get to have your bedroom anymore. You're sleeping in the doghouse. Outside, like the dog. Forever. Because you disobeyed. No loving father does that. He disciplines, he cares, he corrects, he confronts, but he loves through it all. And God is the ultimate father. He loves through it all. No father goes back to the hospital and says, this one's not very good. Can I exchange? Can I, can I turn this in? Because they're not walking very quickly and I'm into sports and I would like a different model, please. No loving father says that. That's the point he's making. God is your father. He loves you. He loves you. You are not to relate to him. Listen, remember, we have, we have how we think about ourselves, and we have how God thinks about us. And if we think about ourselves as relating to God mostly in terms of fear and worry and terror and wondering what he thinks of us, or even something less than that, like professional courtesy, God says, no, that is not who you are. You are not to function towards God with that kind of ongoing terror, uncertainty, or he's a, a stranger, a divine stranger up there who keeps my name in a file somewhere so I don't get lost, but other than that is indifferent to me. No, you are not to view God that way, Paul says. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received, he says, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You have received the spirit of adoption. You have been adopted. Paul's reminding them and us by that phrase, listen, listen, there was a time when you were not God's child. The Bible makes it very clear that the modern idea that all of humanity, we're all God's children. Perhaps you've heard that in a popular song somewhere or somebody say that a celebrity. Well, we're all God's children. No, no, we're not. Not in the way they mean it. We do not all have this privileged affection from God. None of us have it, actually, at birth. None of us do. The Bible calls us children of wrath or children of the devil, 
We're children of Adam, therefore we're under God's curse. God is our judge. He is not the loving father of all people just because they're living and breathing on this world. Rather, what he did is he went out and found a bunch of orphan enemies and he said, that one I will make my daughter. That one I will make my son. That's what he did. He, he adopted us. And he adopted us not because we were impressive, as Paul already said in chapter 5. He said, look, he found us when we were sinful and weak and ungodly. That's when Christ died for us, not when we were impressive. He didn't go to the orphanage and say, can everybody please do some math problems for me? And I'd like to maybe hear your SAT scores, and then let me see you shoot a few hoops. Yeah, yeah, okay, that one. Bring that one over here. No, no, he went and found the worthless, the bedraggled, the cursing, spitting, defiant one, and he said, yes, this one. This one I will adopt as my own. Many, many years ago, I was able to join a team that went to Rancho 3M, a ranch in, outside of Juarez, Mexico, where a lot of our churches have served over the years. And it was, a, it was a profound experience, as I know it has been for many who have gone there. While we were there, we're meeting the children and caring for the children. These poor children obviously have had horribly different lives than almost anybody here, surely. And this one boy, for some reason, just I just became attached to him over the few days we were there. Now, now this boy was a, a major, major problem. He obviously had had a horrific background. And, and he would, as far as they could tell, if I remember correctly, he had trouble talking, but the words that they could make out were curse words, probably because that's mostly what he had heard. And he would wet himself so that if you were going to be near to him, it, it wasn't going to be a pleasant experience because he wasn't a pleasant individual. That's who God chose. That was you. A cursing, defiant, orphan wreck. And God didn't just Make sure you were alive at the hospital and then say, all right, he's living and breathing. Somebody get him out of here. He took you home. He put you at his own table next to his children. When Paul says we're adopted, he means it to communicate grace and affection and shocking love. He says, we have the ability to cry, Abba, Father. This, this whole sentence, it's meant to communicate to you a real identity, an identity of affection and love and care and tenderness and access and closeness. So that if we think of God mostly formally or like a, a legal connection, he has my file in heaven, but I'm not close to him, he, he wants to change that perspective. Perhaps you've heard this quote before by J.I. Packer, but it's worth rereading multiple times in your life. J.I. Packer says this about adoption. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. <clears throat> that is not in question. 
Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this, the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness and affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. They're not actually contrasted. They, they go together. To get one is to get the other. There are no justified Christians who are not also adopted Christians. All those whom God justifies, he also adopts. All those with the Spirit of God are sons of God. And what that means is you can call God Father. You can call God Abba, Father. We're not familiar with the word Abba, but it's a, it's a very particular word that Jesus would have used that would have been surprising that he would have used this word. It, it's not a word of casual disrespect. It is a word of, of close, respectful affection. One commentator, Jeremiah, quoted in John Stott, he says it this way. Abba was an everyday word, a a homely family word. No Jew would have dared to address God in this manner. Jesus did it always in all his prayers, which are handed down to us with one single exception, the cry from the cross when he was being treated as we should have been treated. It is as though, because of the cross, Jesus hands his own word to us, his own access to us. We are not second-class, distant children. We are given the same kind of... This is... We are given the same kind of access that Jesus, the beloved Son, has with God the Father. So when he cries... Abba, he hands that to you, purchased by the blood of his forsakenness on the cross, and says, call him that. That means that if we choose to live with God as a merely formal relationship, we are doing Serious wrong to what Jesus died to give us. Jesus died to give you, Abba, Father. Let's use it. Let's use it. Not only are we to call him Father, but it it is as though, if we can put it this way, God knows our tendency to doubt this identity. 
So the Spirit himself, in verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit. So God the Spirit is shouting, if we can put it this way, with his own megaphone inside of us, you are God's child because our conscience and the world and the devil and that megaphone is shouting to us, you cannot possibly be God's child, God's Judged enemy, surely, but not God's child. Perhaps a religious servant of God, able to see him from a distance, but not God's child. No, but the Spirit of God shouts back and says, yes, you are. Yes, you are, because this is the Spirit of his Son. And the Spirit of his Son knows that the atonement was sufficient and knows that God's purpose was not only for distant servants, but for close children. So he shouts back and says, you are indeed. You are indeed the child of God. Even in the midst of your current sin against him, the Spirit is saying to you, you are God's child. Even when you are wandering, if you are a Christian, farther away from God for a season, the Spirit within you is saying, you are God's child. Even when you are questioning in your own mind the reality of being God's child, the Spirit is bearing witness and saying, I testify as God the Spirit that you are God's child. God has claimed you as his own. God has taken you out of wrath and out of judgment and out of an orphan state and into his own family and arms. God carries you when you cry. God watches over you when you are sinning. God comes to you when you are wandering. God is your father. This is true. Is that how you think of yourself? This is our present privilege. But then, as if that weren't enough, Paul turns and looks to the future. He turns and looks to the future because our present privilege is by faith. But he says it won't always be. It won't always be unclear what you are. It will not always be be this way. John, the apostle, says something very similar in 1 John chapter 3. He says, what what we will be has not yet appeared, but one day we will see him and we will be like him. Paul uses this emphasis of inheritance. So this is the second section here, here, the future glory of God's children. And Paul says, if children, then. Oh, you got to imagine Paul's almost childlike giddiness. Imagine a, a, a dad who surprises his children with a surprise on top of a surprise. So, so we, we tried to do that with our children this last year. We, we took them to the beach for a few days, and they had a blast. It was a great time. They had their friends there, lots of fun and everything. And after a few days, we loaded up the car. It's all sandy and everything. And we're going to head back home. And as we all do, there's kind of a bit of, oh, that's, that was such a fun time. Thank you. And, you know, it's kind of sad to be done. And after we drove away in the opposite direction of home, nobody commented too much on where we were going. But after a few minutes, we surprised them and said, hey, guys, how would it be if we don't go home? 
How about if we go in the opposite direction and extend our vacation and go to this city we want to go to? We want to take you to this special place. It was a surprise on top of a fun thing. Well, well, this is a surprise on top of a surprise. He says, look, not only are you God's children right now by faith, there will come a day then. And I I think I I can imagine Paul with almost like a a, a childlike enthusiasm. Then, then we are also heirs. To, To be an heir means that you would inherit what the father has. You would inherit what the father has. And and this is surprising because the inheritance should go to the oldest son. And especially in this case, the oldest son is infinitely worthy of that inheritance. It should also only go when the father dies. And this father cannot die. So this is surprise on top of surprise on top of surprise. Because what he says is you are heirs. Heirs of God. God and fellow heirs with Christ. What he's pointing to is a future day when the children of God will be revealed to an unseeing world and they will receive the heavenly inheritance that is God himself and all of the glory and royalty and honor that goes along with being God's own beloved child. A privilege that even the mightiest angel has never had. A privilege that even the mightiest, most powerful, most awe-inspiring, angelic being has never had to be God's own child. And to have God's own inheritance as ours. Fellow heirs with Christ, do do you realize what that means? It means that somehow what Christ receives, he shares with us. Christ himself in his victory, in his glory, his heavenly glory, the inheritance he receives of a a permanent, eternal future with fullness of joy and happiness and glory and delight, absent any sin, affirmed and loved by his father. And he says, "I, I will not receive that alone. You will receive that with me. Brothers and sisters, this is true. Now he makes it clear, since you are a child, you will follow in the footsteps of your great older brother and it will be necessary, as he concludes there, right now for you to suffer with him in order that you may also be glorified with him. In God's mind, there is a a process of servanthood on earth in this fallen world. The process means following in the footsteps of Jesus. We will live in the difficult path of obedience. That will include suffering. But, but God's heart in it is just as Jesus received his glorious affirmation and resurrection, so also will we. And God sees our present suffering as light and momentary and temporary in view of the reward that he has in store for us. 
He sees it as winning for us in a, an incredible honor beyond imagination. He sees it as brief and momentary when we face unpopularity for Christian beliefs. Or we are told we can't have that job if we follow the word of God. Or we stand for Jesus and are, are very un- unfriended or, or dis- disbarred from all of our relational connections at school or at work. No, God sees that that's such a, a temporary suffering considering you have an inheritance coming. It'd be like God saying, we're going to go on a year-long vacation, but we've got to take a long boat ride to get there. It's going to be unpleasant. People are going to think of you as just one of the workers. They're not going to know that your father owns the boat, owns the future, owns the destination where you're going, and you get privileged status, frontline status when you get there. But for now, you've you got to work on the boat, and you've got to just kind of live with the shame of, of saying, I, I believe in God. I believe that I'm going to his future. You're going to be laughed at and mocked and just treated like just any other ordinary person. But the reality is you're, you're not ordinary, not because you're not, but because God has claimed you as his child. But for now, you're going to suffer in this broken hull of a world, but you're going to get to that shore, and it's going to be magnificent because you are God's child. What Paul essentially is trying to say to us is believe that you are God's beloved child. I I want to emphasize that because I, I don't want you leaving here thinking only of God as creator, though you must think of him that way, or even only of God as this holy and sovereign judge, or even only as God as redeemer, because the redemption had a a goal, it had a point. It wasn't just to deliver from wrath, it was to deliver into adoption. That's part of what makes the cross glorious, not just what what Jesus saved us from, but what he saved us into. So, When you are maligned, teased, ignored, or mocked for standing for the Lord Jesus Christ, your identity should come into mind. I am a child of God. When you are tempted to be fearful about the future, where will I go to college, and I don't have a scholarship, and my boss doesn't like me, and I don't know who I'm going to marry, and what am I supposed to do with this hard gossipy situation that I'm now troubled by? What ought to come into your mind is who are you? I am a child of God. When you have that ordinary thought that all teenagers have, and all adults ultimately have, what's the next thing I'm looking forward to? When you go home from now, you will have that thought. I guarantee you, you'll be thinking, that was great. What's the next fun thing? And you'll be maybe thinking, oh, gosh, it's not for another month. It's just ordinary boredom for a month. And then fun, I get to do this or the party. You'll you'll seize on some small fun thing just so you can look forward to it. Listen, children of God already have a great thing to look forward to. They don't need lesser things to look forward to. They have the great thing of being God's child and receiving the inheritance granted to God's children. When you're trying to go to sleep at night and you're worried and you're anxious and you're replaying that conversation and wondering what they thought about you and you're living in the fear of people, what ought to come to your mind is, wait, I am a child of God. What people think of me, it doesn't matter that much. 
And when you're a parent and your children aren't following the Lord that you've told them to follow, that you've represented all of your life, and you're weeping and crying over their souls, and you're wondering how you're going to go on in faith and believing, remember, you are a child of God, and he holds his children when they cry. My young friends, my older friends, this is true of you. If you are a believer in Jesus, and if you are still not, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Do you not desire God as your father, Jesus as your redeemer, to know and love the person that made you? Will you not now turn to him and let him take you into his family room and arms rather than staying in the cold outside a spitting, cursing, urinating orphan Will you not let God take you home in Jesus Christ? Please do. He invites you in the name of Jesus to come to him, repent of your sins, and receive this gift of God as your father. If you are a Christian, let me urge you as we close. There is what God says about us, and there is how we think about ourselves. They must line up, but often they don't. Let God's word bring you back so that your train of life is headed towards his glory and his direction. Who are you? Who God says I am. Created, gendered, redeemed, adopted. Who God says I am is who I am. Let's pray. This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.